Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We're going to um, continue in Matthew 6 today. Um, we're going to continue our study of the Lord's pattern for prayer. Now, last week, if you'll remember, in that very first phrase of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, Jesus taught us three critical truths about God's nature and about our relationship to him and how we're to approach him in prayer. You know, Jesus said when we pray, we must first be mindful of God's whole family. In other words, not just ourselves. Our Father is all of our Father. And secondly, we're to recognize the shocking privilege it is that according to John, the first chapter, to all who did receive him, who believed in his names, he gave the, he gave the right to become children of God. And then third, we must remember that our Father in heaven is not like our earthly Father in the sense that he's limited by time or space or um, infinite resources of this world. Our Father in heaven doesn't have those kind of limitations. Well, with those three principles under our belt, so to speak, with those locked in, Jesus reveals that the priority of all prayer is that we would perceive and we would pursue and we would praise and we would proclaim God's holiness. That's one of the things that we need to do in prayer. Um, so Jesus said, when you pray, um, in Matthew 6, the ninth verse there, says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed. Now, that's the word there I want you to circle. That's what we're going to key in on today. Hallowed be your name. Now, the Lord's Prayer, it actually contains six specific, um, specific petitions or requests. But Jesus directs us here to begin our prayer by expressing our concerns for the glory of God. That's something that we need to do right up front in our prayers. Remember now, we learned last week that he's also warned us not to pray in vain repetition, not to do it that way. So we must always guard that our hallowing his name is never just meaningless flattery that we offer um, before getting to the, our real agenda. So it's, we don't need to do that. We need to make sure it's heartfelt, that it's not just meaningless. So our prayer's first priority then should always be that God's majestic glory and his holiness be put on display. That's what this model prayer um, is teaching us here. This pattern for prayer, that's what it's teaching us. So the very first on your outline there, the lesson of the first petition is always take care of the thy before going to the my. Always take care of the thy before going on to the my. Our Father, he will give us, he will forgive us, he will lead us, he will deliver us after we hallow his name, bring his kingdom, and submit to his will. So there's some things about this prayer that maybe we should all take note of. Maybe we need to adjust our own prayers to him. Well, in Matthew, the 10th chapter, in verse 29, Jesus tells us that not even a sparrow falls from the sky without the Father's notice. In other words, he notices everything. 
And John MacArthur, in his commentary, he notes that in the Aramaic that Jesus spoke, the Greek word for fall literally is to hop. So see, it's not just the father knows when a sparrow dies, but the father even knows when a sparrow hops. You know, he knows everything here. So when it comes to our petitions to him, we don't need to do a bunch of religious gyrations like the prophets of Baal in their contest with Elijah did. We don't need to do all that. Our God cares and does not sleep, according to Psalms 121. We don't need to flatter him with shallow praise before our request. And frankly, I think God is probably offended by that kind of manipulation, just as we are offended by that kind of manipulation. You know, people try to flatter us before they want something from us. But Jesus says this. He says, when you pray to your Father in heaven, um, begin by expressing your own genuine heartfelt concern for his glory and his agenda. Folks, that's first in prayer. Now, the second thing, consider the language of the first petition. Consider the language of the first petition. In the ancient world, names were very important, much more than just mere titles. I mean, that meant something in the first century. You know, we see a person's Back then, a person's name represented everything that person was. There was something to a name. You know, to act in the name of someone was to act in accordance to their values and their purpose and their power. Their names meant something. It described who they were. You know, to name something, that was to demonstrate authority over it. You know, parents name their children because you're their parents. You have authority over them. Adam named all the animals because he was going to be their master. He named the animals. But let me tell you something. No one, no man named God. No one. Every name of God was revealed by God to man. We didn't describe God. God described himself there. And each of God's name reveals to us a unique and an important aspect of who he really is. Now, the third commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 7, you know, is do not use God's name in vain. But in their uh, legalistic obsession with that, the Jews kind of missed the point. You know, they were just obsessed with what that said, and they, and they just really missed the point here. You know, because God, he wants all of his creation um, to revere all that he is and not just the title by which he's called. Did you get that? We're to reveal all that God is and not just the title by which he's called. Now, God first, renamed, he first um, revealed his name to Moses in Exodus 3 as Yahweh or I am who I am, you know, and to show their great respect then, the Jews never spoke it, and they were even hesitant to even write it. When they read scripture out loud and they came to the word Yahweh, you know, they substituted Adonai or Lord, 
And later, some Jewish scholars, they invented a new word to substitute for Yahweh as well. And it seems like Jehovah, it kind of was formed at that particular time. But the intent of the, of the third commandment here was never for God's people to fear to speak God's name. The goal was that they would revere and they would honor all that his name represents. That was the meaning of that third commandment. Now, in Exodus 34th chapter, in verse 6, it begins, Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Read that. You may want to circle that, and I want you to look at those words there. Lord. Notice that the word Lord is spelled there with all capital letters. I want you to notice that. And whenever you see that in your English Old Testament, you know that behind that is God's name, the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's what that means. And in contrast, when you see the word Lord with a capital L and the ORDs in small letters, um, that's the word Adonai. So here Moses literally calls God's name, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he describes what Yahweh means. Look at the rest of that verse. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I want you to notice that that description is not of the, the word, that four of the four letters there, but it's of the character of his, that his name represents. In Psalms 9, uh, 9 in verse 10, it says, Those who know your name put their trust in you. Now, that isn't saying that everyone who knows the title Yahweh will trust God. It's saying that those who know that all that name represents will trust him. And in Psalms, the seventh chapter in verse 17, it says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Now, that's not saying that we should all praise the word Yahweh because it's some cool word or something like that. It's not saying that at all. But what we are to praise the name Yahweh because of all it describes. That's what we're to praise. So Jesus said, when you pray, pray something like this. Our Father who loves us and who has in heaven all the supplies to meet our needs, may your identity, your nature, your character, your attributes, and reputation, may all that you are be hallowed. Folks, that's what that means. Every Bible name of God reveals an aspect of who he is. He's Elohim, the creator. He's El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. He's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. He's Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. He's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. He's Jehovah Shalom, um, the Lord our peace. He's Jehovah Ra, the Lord our shepherd. Jehovah Tiskanu, the Lord of our righteousness. He's Jehovah Sabbath, um, the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Mekodishkim, the Lord who sanctifies. And Jehovah um, Shammah, the Lord who is near. But let me tell you something. The most revealing name of God is the Lord Jesus Christ because he's our master, 
He's our Savior and King. That is the most revealing name of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, think of the names, even think of the names that Jesus drew to himself here. You know, bread of life, living water, the way, truth and life, the resurrection, the good shepherd, the branch, the bright and morning star, the Lamb of God, the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valley, the door. And even before he was born, Isaiah in the, in, in, in the fourth chapter in verse six named him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Folks, Christians are to pray in the name of, of Jesus. But let me tell you, just to add that phrase to the end of a prayer, it's not like adding a spiritual postage stamp or a, a, a zip code there. To pray in the name of Jesus is to say, Lord, I ask this because I know it's consistent with your character and your will. Folks, when we pray, we need to have these kind of things in mind. And frankly, for us to ever say in the name of Jesus by not knowing that, it's almost like taking the Lord's name in vain. See, so to begin a prayer by asking God to hallow his name is asking God to help us to only think and only feel and only pray in accordance with who Jesus is and what Jesus would want. So maybe some of our prayers need to get off the selfish realm and go to the realm of what God really wants in a prayer. What does the word hallow mean exactly? Well, we translate its root um, hagios as holy, separated, or sanctified. And holy or hallowed describes something that's pure and, and unique. And as God alone is truly uh, holy, the word now describes all the things uniquely associated with him. Think about this. The temple was a holy place because it was set apart for God's worship. The Israelites were to be separate or a holy people because they were called to a unique relationship and mission for God. The Levites, they were holy because they were called to a distinctive service. And as Christians, all Christians, according to 2 Corinthians 6, you know, we're to come out and be separate from the world or to be holy, or as Peter puts it in the King James, a peculiar people here. In Revelation, the fourth chapter, verse 8, God is holy, holy, holy. And in Jeremiah 10 and verse 6, there is none like him. And to hallow him is to confess that. So when we hallow God's name, that's something that we need to really think about. You know, this is the balancing principle, you know, to last week's sermon. See, the one true creator to whom everyone will give an account is indeed a holy God. And the truth is, you know, is what makes that so amazing is that according to Romans, we're all sinners and we all fall short of God's glory. You know, how could we ever possibly call him our father? That's really amazing. Now, I think God's people have always struggled to hold the two truths of God's holiness 
and God's fatherhood in balance. How do we do that? You know, it's not been too long ago, and most of you are of the age, you can attest to this, that when most people in church and many people in our culture, um, they thought when they thought about um, the holy God of the Bible, it filled their hearts with holy fear. We can remember that time, but that era has clearly passed. It's passed us by. You know, there are many today, they've never really heard a sermon on God's holies, much less um, contemplated um, the all-consuming, wrathful judgment, which the Word of God assures us that Jesus is going to pour out on mankind one day. You know, we like to look at the God and think of the God of love and peace, you know, and that sells books, and it makes people feel good. You know, it makes us feel good about ourselves, but we don't look at the other side of God, the wrathful part of God. Remember, I've said this many times here. God's wrath is just as fierce as his mercy is sure. We don't like to look at that part because that don't sell books. And that don't make us feel good all the time because we understand that we may be in God's wrath. If we're not doing what he said, we're going to be in the, in the wrath of God. Uh, there's a lot of churches today. They seem like they've just abandoned any pursuit whatsoever of their biblical mandates of evangelizing the lost or edifying the saints and gathering. And it's really a sad, sad fact that many churchgoers today, they actually think that the purpose of a worship service is somehow to serve them. And they will leave a worship service saying, well, I wasn't served very good today. So, you know, I didn't like the worship service. It wasn't for me today. How dumb can we be? Folks, we need to understand that that's not, we, we are the ones that come to worship Almighty God. We need to understand that God is the audience. We're the performers here. Um, and this era that we're living in of this self-styled Christianity, you know, few people feel any duty whatsoever to evangelize or to edify, much less gather for worship. You know, they don't think twice about skipping the Lord's Day assembly if they have something else that they want to do. They don't understand how important that is. And even as we enter the presence of our, in our sacred assemblies here, when we enter the presence of Almighty God, some people too often, you know, they just reveal their utter ignorance of who God really is. You know, um, Hebrews tells us God's a consuming fire and, you know, how we should act in his presence. They forget all those things. Um, friends, we don't need to approach the king of kings fearlessly and uh, habitually late and casually with a latte in our hand. We don't need to do it that way. We need to understand who God is when we come to worship. You know, during the time of of crisis for everyone when we were experiencing um, the COVID get up here. The technology that enabled us 
you know, and especially those that are more vulnerable among us, to stay connected to the body of Christ. That was a wonderful blessing. You know, that, that technology then, it was a wonderful thing to us. But each week in our minister's meeting, some of us older ministers get together and, and we chat. And one of the things that bothers us, or maybe we have a fear about, is having that technology, it's ex it just accelerated the pruning of the church and the separation of those who live to serve the Lord from those who believe that God of heaven exists to serve them. You know, there's so many can name a, a right good percentage of folks that never came back to church after COVID. And so this pruning has taken place here. Now, I know God's concern is not and never has been our externals. And when I say that, you know, in the past, many Christians, like the Pharisees, you know, they pridefully thought their externals somehow made them holy, the things that were showy about them. But today, don't you worry about the flippancy and the shallowness of many people in the modern church? Don't you worry about that? You know, and, and I worry about, you know, what our externals are teaching our children. And even more so, you know, what's re, what is revealing about our own thinking and our own heart towards God. Folks, he is our beloved heavenly father. Folks, his name is also to be hallowed, for he's the one holy judge of both the living and the dead. Folks, we need to understand the one that we come to worship, the one that we come to pay homage to on Sunday, is the one that's going to judge us for eternity. We need to understand that. And always, we must approach him with just great reverence and fear. We must hallow his name. Take a look at these examples here, and I've I think I listed for you in, in your outline. The, the God that we sang to today, he did not allow Moses, his very faithful servant and friend, to enter the promised land because in one fit of anger, Moses said this, Numbers 20, Moses, he failed to treat God as holy in the sight of the people of Israel. He failed to hallow his name. And in Samuel, the 13th chapter, verse 9, um, God's chosen king, he grew impatient when God's chosen prophet was late to a pre-battle sacrifice. So Saul, he just kind of presumed himself, you know, to worship himself in a self-styled manner. You know, he did what God had said only priests could do. And because he did not hallow God's name, his service to God was terminated. Folks, that's pretty serious. In, in 2 Samuel, in chapter 6, here's a story that the modern church needs to listen to. We need to hear this. The Ark of the Covenant, the ultimate symbol of, of God's holiness and his presence, had been captured by the Philistines. Well, on this day, it was being returned to its rightful place in Jerusalem. Well, God had given specific instructions about how this symbol of his holiness was to be transported. Very detailed instructions about how it was to be transported. No man was to ever touch the ark. There were rings for carrying poles, 
built into the sides of the ark. And these carrying poles would go through those rings. And it was to only be transported on the shoulder of holy priests in their holy robes who had sanctified themselves. That was the only way that it was supposed to be transported. Well, for some reason, God's people just ignored God's instructions here. They did not take his holiness seriously. And they stuck the ark on an ox cart. And when the ox stumbled and the ark began to fall, so a man named Uzzah, probably with good intentions, he put his hands on the ark to steady it, but God immediately struck him dead. Folks, you see, going to church or having good intentions in your heart in no way compensates for willful neglect or disobedience to God's word or casual disregard for his holiness. I'll tell you something, when God says something, folks, he means it. When he says come to worship on the first day of the week, he means it. When he says be around the Lord's table on the first day of the week, he means it. Folks, we need to understand that. In 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26, King uh, Isaiah he entered the temple to burn incense, but it was an affront to God's holiness. God struck him with leprosy. You know, in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit. So God struck them both dead, causing the whole church to fear his holiness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses um, 29 and 30, members of the church at Corinth, they were partaking communion in an unholy manner. So God came down and caused some of them to become physically sick and some of them die. Folks, God is serious about his holiness. When you look at those examples, you can see God is serious about his holiness. And while it's essential that we know him as our Abba, as our daddy, it's equally essential that we never forget that he's the holy God of heaven and we are all sinners falling short of his glory. We should never, ever forget that. We breathe today only by his unending mercy and his amazing grace. In Proverbs 23 and verse 17, it says, always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word for fear is uh, yair. It, can, it carries with it the idea of great honor and great respect to the point of Solomon uses it 18 times in his book of wisdom because yair, you know, the uh, great fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. In Matthew 10 and verse thir- uh, 28, Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and the body in hell. And then in 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, it says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Number three on your outline. What does the living of the first petition look like? You know, how do we hallow God's name? Well, first of all, God's name is holy 
whether men recognize it or not. God's name is holy. But we hallow God's name by truly recognizing all he is. We glorify him by seeing and extolling his glory. We hallow him by seeing and extolling his holiness. Now, there are two essential steps, I believe, in recognizing all who God is. Step number one is knowledge, acknowledge the reality of his existence. Acknowledge the reality of his existence. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, He who comes to God must believe that he exists. Hallowing God's name, it begins with recognizing that I am who I am is. I am who I am is. We need to recognize that. So first, we recognize his presence here. Secondly, we must understand him as he's revealed himself. Now that second commandment, the Old Testament there in Exodus, you know, we're not to invent a personality and then attribute it to God. We're not to do that. You know, that's called idolatry. And we know what idolatry will get us. But instead, we're to listen and we're to hear and we're to worship God as he has revealed himself. You know, very practically, um, I think it's a really good idea. And many people do this, especially when they, uh, maybe not just the short, quick prayers of the day, but when they have time to actually sit down and, and, and worship God, they always like to read scripture before they pray. And I think that's a very good idea. You know, in 2 Timothy 3.16, you know, talking about all of God's breathed scripture, it reveals the truth, you know, about who God is. And understanding the revealed truth of God, we can hallow his name by reciting it. You know, we can say, God, your word reveals your power. It reveals your love. It reveals your mercy. And Lord, I am... Uh, I see you just manifesting all these things in my life. See, that's hallowing God's name. Now, it's really not enough just to recognize all of God is. Ultimately, we hallow his name by resolving to be like him. We resolve to be just like Jesus. Martin Luther said this. He was asked, you know, how is God's name hallowed among us? And his answer was this. When both our doctrines and our living are true Christians. That's how we hallow his name. Folks, one of the things that I learned early on <clears throat> when I was just a little fellow growing up in a parsonage is that fairly or unfairly, everything that I did was a reflection on my father. Everything that I did. You know, when you live in a parsonage, you live in a fishbowl. You know, people see everything that you do. So everything that you do, it was a reflection on my dad, you know, and we all kind of get this because every time a teenager gets into trouble, fairly or unfairly, many people, they question their parenting. They question that kid's parenting. You know, that's just kind of the way life works today. Well, when we become children of God, when we call him our father, all of our actions reflect on his name things that we do and say, everything we are, everything we do, fairly or unfairly, brings honor or shame to his name. 
So the way you and I best hallow God's name is by imitating Jesus Christ, our Savior. As we surrender ourselves to the hallowing of work of His Spirit, His fruit, the manifestation of His character, it grows in us. And when the world begins to see God's character in us, God will receive His glory. Now again, God is holy. His name is hallowed whether or not you recognize it. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're not asking God to do or be something that he already is. We're asking him to put himself on display. That's what we're asking. We're asking him to let men see and know his holiness. And of course, he wants that to begin in every one of us as we become his image bearers. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Help us to understand exactly what that means. And Father, help us to live like we know what that means. In Jesus' name, amen.